Let's um, start this morning by praying Psalm 18, which was our psalm, pointed psalm for the day yesterday. It's on page 789 of your hymnal. They omit some of the verses of Psalm 18. It's 50 verses in its entirety, but that's all right. We'll, we'll pray a truncated version of Psalm 18 this, this morning. Um, Psalm 18 is, all the Psalms are messianic, of course, but Psalm 18 is, a, I think, particularly clear um, in the way that it functions as a messianic Psalm. It's written by David, of course, and seems to refer to a time in his life, um, likely when he was persecuted by Saul, um, that the Lord delivered him and um, protected him. Um, but I think as we pray it, we should pray it um, considering how this Psalm is um, spoken by the voice of Jesus, how Jesus um, can speak this psalm um, on our behalf and the way in which it really, you just can imagine Jesus praying this even in the context of his crucifixion and then the deliverance of God um, and his resurrection from the dead and the way that his father was faithful to him. So as we, as we pray this, I would encourage you to pray it with that context in mind this morning. Um, this is a psalm that speaks of Christ, that Christ speaks actually. Psalm 18, I'll pray the unbolded portion, y'all respond with the, the bolded part. I love you, O Lord, my strength. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. The earth trembled and quaked. It quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless you show yourself blameless. You save the humble, 
You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. For who is God besides the Lord, and who is the rock except our God? He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the death and resurrection of your Son and the way that that event reveals not only your love for humanity, but also your faithfulness, um, the way that you delivered your Son um, from the power of the grave, that you brought him up um, and gave him, put him on a, on a stable place, on a firm place, Father, um, because of your love and your covenant-keeping faithfulness, which is expressed so clearly in the resurrection of our Lord. And this day, Father, as we um, uh, gather on the day that it is set apart and memorialized forever um, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we pray that your spirit uh, would be present with us even as we study this morning um, the law, um, the word that you speak to us um, um, to orient our lives, to please you, um, to love our neighbors. And we pray that you would give us wisdom as we consider these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's, it's great to be with you all um, today. Um, so hopefully you have a handout. If you don't, um, I'm sure we can locate one for you. I think, are they back in the sound booth, the extras guys? Yes, perfect. Um, so today we are looking at the second commandment, and we're doing this series on the Ten Commandments this, uh, this fall. Um, before we jump into the second commandment, any questions or topics for discussion from either the introduction we gave two weeks ago to God's law and the Ten Commandments, or last week we just talked about the first commandment, we talked about how it is uh, the commandment which um, requires that we love, um, trust, and fear God more than anything else. That's, that's really the heart of the first commandment, that it is the foundation for all the other commandments, and it is about the kind of total loyalty um, that God requires of those um, of, his, of his people, that he, he possesses them and he requires that they uh, respond to that possession with, with um, comprehensive loyalty and, and faithfulness. Any questions or things to discuss from those past couple lessons? Anything at all? Okay, great. Well, let's move into the second commandment. Um, second commandment, I'm just going to start by reading the text from Exodus 20. So first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself, the Lord says. Remember, this is the, the Lord speaking, um, engraving actually the commandments um, on stone. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there you have it. There is the second commandment. Um, John Frame explains, uh, I think, helpfully a way to think about the Ten Commandments. He says, the first four commandments um, serve as rules for worship. Um, They're focused on right worship of God, um, which I think is actually a really helpful way to think about the first four commandments. The first four commandments we've talked about are uh, focused on what it means to love God, and if, if they're focused, and the, the latter six on what it means to love our neighbor. Um, so if, if, if we're talking about what it means to love God, of course, worship is going to be at the heart of what it means for us to love um, God. Um, worship has a context. I'm sorry, love of God has a context, and that context is worship, especially the formal gathered worship of God's people that he has always placed at the heart of their relationship to him, even going back to um, the Old Testament and the establishment of the people of God. So he says, Frame says, um, the first four commandments serve as rules for worship. The first commandment deals with the object of worship, right? Who are we going to worship? Who are we going to adore? Who are we going to um, venerate um, with all of our loyalty in our heart? And that, of course, is the Lord our God. You shall have no other gods before me. The second, with the manner of worship. So this, this is a really, I think, helpful way to think about the second commandment. And if you read um, the way in which our Westminster Standards talk about the second commandment, as we will um, in a little bit, you'll see this. That they focus the second commandment on the manner of worship that God um, requires from his people. The, 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 the way in which they worship is the, the focus of the second commandment. The third has to do with the language of worship. You shall not take the name of your Lord your God in vain. Um, and then the fourth, keep the Sabbath day holy, has to do with the time of worship. So God um, doesn't just say, worship me. He tells us how to worship him, the kind of language to use when we worship him, and when to worship him. Um, is the argument, that that is what the first four commandments are doing, and this is why worship is so important for us to pay attention to and to think about. Um, There's nothing that has influenced the life of the church. If you read church history of the last 20 years, there's nothing that has influenced the life of the church more than the way in which they worship faithfully or unfaithfully. And I don't mean just as individuals, I mean as the corporate body. And you can just think about that. Um, the, the way in which the church has worshipped faithfully has meant fruitfulness and um, godliness and purity and true religion. And when the church has, has fallen into false worship practices, um, it has led to corruption and uh, not the love of neighbor, but the opposite, all these sorts of things. And so worship, is at, it's almost like worship is at the heart of who we are, right, as human beings, that the way in which we worship is going to manifest itself in terms of the life that we live, that we can't separate the two, right? You can't live faithfully as a Christian unless you worship faithfully as a Christian, or you can't live faithfully as the church unless you worship faithfully as the church, and those things are dependent upon one another. Um, The Protestant Reformation, even more than a a theological, I think, Uh, Reformation was a reformation of worship. Um, Worship was always at the heart of the concerns of the reformers of the Protestant church. Um, And that's something that we should remember and think about um, as we think about worship today. 
So what do we learn from the second commandment? Um, so I'm going to walk through these four points and we'll talk about um, the Westminster Confession says. Um, first, I think we learn of God's absolute transcendence and his glory, majesty, and power. Remember the story in Exodus 33 um, where Moses says that he wants to see God um, and, and God says, you can't see me. And, you know, I'll hide you in the rock. Um, you can see my backside, um, I'll, but I'm going to cover you with my hand um, because no man um, can see the face of God and live. And so there's this emphasis all throughout, and certainly this is true in the story of Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. Um, you know, the people are afraid because um, there's this thing happening on Sinai that includes clouds and lightning and fire and, and noise, and, and it's, it's terrifying, it's overwhelming. Um, and this is the, the revelation, in some ways, of their God. This is who he is. And I, th I think the Second Commandment is meant to protect this. Um, we must not, and I'm going to talk about, First Timothy in a second. Um, we must not make graven images of God to worship because they are inherently a false representation of God. Does that make sense? The reason why you can't make a graven image of the living God and worship it fundamentally is because it is inherently a lie. It is inherently false. It inherently omits um, aspects. It's a God, the, the God that we serve, the living God, the one true God is impossible to um, to capture um, with a picture or with a statue or with um, some kind of thing that you can make with your hands. Um, that is, uh, that is a, an inherently limiting um, thing. And we might say, well, what about Jesus? Um, what about, you know, he became incarnate. Can we capture him somehow? I think it's really fascinating. I'm actually in 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to turn to this and read it to you. Um, so Timothy is concluding his first letter, I'm sorry, Paul is concluding his first letter to Timothy, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach into the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's talking about Jesus here, right? He's talking about the second person of the Trinity. Um, he, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And then he says, who alone has immortality, right? Who alone lives forever. Who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And I think that's a really fascinating to think about the reality that Paul is speaking there, not um, primarily of the first person of the Trinity, but the second person, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself dwells in unapproachable light, um, that he um, has never been seen or um, can be seen. To him be honor and eternal dominion. What's he referring to there, right? I mean, John talks about in the beginning of First John, you know, that which we have seen and touched and handled, um, you know, we to impart to you. Well, what the point that Paul is making is that Jesus is no longer, he is still incarnate, yes, but he is incarnate now in a different way, right? He has been glorified in his resurrection and his ascension to heaven and his return to the Father's right hand. And, and he is um, one God with the Father and the Spirit. And so we, we can't sort of take out the incarnate form of Jesus and say, well, that's God in some limiting way. That's God in a way that we can sort of manage and, 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 and um, constrain for ourselves. 
um, that Jesus, especially now in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, has returned to this sort of unapproachable, um, transcendent existence with us. Now, of course, we can emphasize also that he is still, in the midst of all that, a human being, and we should, right? Because the writer of Hebrews makes a big deal about that, um, and that means that he is a a faithful, sympathetic high priest for us. Um, But we also need to say, no living man can see the face of Jesus Christ right now, right? Um, The souls of the departed are before him, um, but they, they don't see him with their eyes because their eyes are not resurrected yet. They're not risen yet. And so it will, it will only be on the last day um, when the, the bodies of the just are raised from the dead and reunited with their souls that at last we will see the face of God in Jesus Christ. Um, but, but we could not, I could not, you could not, if we saw Jesus in his glory at the present moment, um, we would fall down dead. And how do we know that? Well, that's what John tells us is what happened to him, right? Revelation chapter one. I mean, this, this is Jesus now in his glory, um, right? So if you're going to paint a portrait of Jesus, it probably should look something like this. I don't necessarily recommend that, but if that's what you wanted to do. Um, he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now you notice this isn't really like a He's just grasping at something, right, to describe um, the vision. Um, this isn't like a literal, you couldn't really, if you tried to paint a portrait of what he's, you wouldn't be able to do it. It doesn't, it's not something that really translates. Um, it's, it's poetry, it's metaphors, it's, 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 it's John grasping to describe what he saw when he saw Jesus, not literally, but in a vision, saw Jesus in his glory. And then he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Um, and I think in that we, we see this just very sort of um, tangibly the, the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. And so I just, I think this, this one thing that the, the second commandment really emphasizes for us, um, God reveals him, and we'll talk about this more, um, God does reveal himself to us in his son, in his incarnation, but how is the incarnation revealed to us who live in the time of Jesus's glorification at the Father's right hand? not visually, right, but through the word, through the written record of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension that we have in the gospels. That is the way that God chooses to reveal his son to us. And one of the reasons for that is that we would be struck dead if we saw Jesus with our faces, with our eyes. Um, it would not because of God's transcendence. And I think that's, that's just, when you come to the second commandment, that's one of the things to think about. The second commandment is protecting the, old, the, the, the absolute transcendence of God, um, which is something we, as modern people, we like to talk a lot about God's imminence, and we can do that, certainly. The Bible does that. But we also need to not neglect um, the transcendence of God because that is also a very uh, substantial uh, scriptural theme as well. Right? Does that make sense? God is not only God with us, he's also God over us and above us and beyond us all at the same time. Um, so second, we, we learn God's hatred of false worship. Um, 
The commandment, second commandment, means more than this, certainly. We've already talked about some of that. But it at least means this, that we may not bow down or serve any carved image. An image of God or anything else in heaven, on earth, or in the seas. And it's important to say that our heart or our intentions in bowing down to carved images in worship is not the crucial thing. It's just the action itself. He says, don't do it. Don't bow down before carved images in religious worship. Um, and this, this commandment has all to do with worship. I mean, if you just sort of read this commandment in a narrow way, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or the water under the earth. That's all of creation. Okay, this isn't just saying you can't make created things or images of created things, right? And we know this is true because just a few chapters after this, God is going to tell Israel how to make the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is going to include images of things, right? Um, olive trees and, and fruit and, and other things and cherubim that are going to be there in the, the holy place. But the, the point is you can't make images and then use them for religious devotion. You can't venerate images of, of, of either created things or of God himself, which your picture of God's going to be terrible, I think the second commandment assumes, but you can't even, even if you make something and say this is God, you can't bow down to it. Um, you, can't, you can't venerate it. Um, and you should actually be very careful about doing it to start with, I think. Um, Exodus 32, of course, is the example of this. Moses is gone. Um, they're worried. Israelites are worried. This is after the Ten Commandments are given. Um, he's been up on the mountain for a long time. They're worried because they can't see the God that delivered them. Um, out of Egypt, the Israelites are, and, and now they can't see Moses either because he's up there in that cloud. And so they say to Aaron, we want to make us an image of the God that delivered us out of, out of Egypt uh, because we want to we see it. We want to <laughs> have something tangible, you know? And, um, and so Aaron does that. He tells them to put the gold together and he, car and he carves this calf and he says, um, here, here are your gods. Um, that the, and the idea there is, I, I think what happens there in Exodus 32, you know, Aaron is not just sort of making some random pagan god for them to worship. He is, I think, actually trying to make wrongly, um, because the second commandment exists already, um, an image of the invisible God um, that delivered them out of the house of slavery to kind of, you know, Aaron is not an example of a non-anxious leader in that moment, right? The people are, are full of anxiety and he's like, well, how can I make them stop being anxious? I'll just do what they want. Um, that'll make it better. And so he, he gives them this God to worship. And of course, um, you know, and it's, I think it's in some ways supposed to be a, a visual representation of the Lord, of Yahweh, that delivered them out of the house of slavery. And of course, what happens is judgment and nearly the in destruction of the entire people of Israel, which would have happened apparently apart from the intercession of Moses and God's des desire to honor Moses. And, and so he doesn't kill all of them, but he kills a lot of them. And, um, and so it's this really sort of big thing, right, that happens. And it happens because of the violation of the second commandment, because they made a graven image and bowed down to it, even though that graven image was purported to be of the living God. So Lightheart says, Peter Lightheart says, um, he's got a wonderful little book on the Ten Commandments, I think is a great resource, it's short, it's helpful. The second word prohibits making images for a particular purpose, to bow down and to serve them. This commandment forbids certain liturgical actions. Um, so it's, it's about not only the making of carven images, graven images, but also the kinds of relationship we have to graven images, um, that we need to not bow down before them or venerate them. 
Um, we might kneel in worship, I would, this is me talking, to confess our sins before God, like that's something that we could do maybe one day. Um, it's hard with these chairs to do it, but we could do it if we had kneelers or maybe we just do it without kneelers, I don't know, whatever. We could, we could kneel in worship before the presence of God, but we would not be kneeling you know, before the cross or something or um, you know, some other object in the sanctuary. Um, you, I would never ask you to do that. I think that would be wrong of me to do that. Um, I, don't, I don't think God would be pleased um, if I did that. Uh, but we do not bow down before created images. Now, an important thing to say, qualifier, is that this commandment forbids bowing before images, but not bowing before men, and that's important. Uh, men, human beings, are not carved images. Um, they're actually God-created men, right? Um, not, we, you know, so, so it's interesting, actually, in the Bible, you see a lot of men bowing down to other men, which I know as an American person, um, if you're an American person, sounds like a very terrible thing to do, but it's, it happens, right? Um, uh, Genesis 30, or yeah, Genesis 33, this is how Jacob shows his uh, uh, piety, repentance, um, rec- trying to reconcile to his brother Esau. Um, and this is just one of many examples in the Bible of this kind of thing. So Jacob's going back to Esau and it says, he himself went on before them, that is the, all his loved ones, his wives and children, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So he, he's genuflecting before his brother. He's, he's bowing down to him. Um, and it's not sinful. It's actually like a, a wise thing for him to do in that particular situation. So just something to think about. I think, it, I think as Americans, modern people, that may sound strange, but um, it's actually okay for you to show submission, um, honor to another living person um, by bowing before them. That doesn't, I mean, maybe you don't want to do that for all sorts of reasons, but um, that's not a sin is what I want to say. Um, and we know it's not a sin because it happens a ton in the Bible and God never seems to care about it. Um, so, and, well, we could talk about just the ways in which, um, you know, <laughs> our, our, the ways in which we, we um, yeah, I'd, there, there do seem to be in, in biblical societies some level of authority and, and hierarchies that exist um, biblically. And I think that's just something for us to think about as people who are sort of part of this radically democratic experiment um, that, that, that we, should, we should at least think about. Um, that there are other ways that people have ordered societies. Um, and God seems to be okay with that. So just, just something to think about. I'm not... I'm glad to be an American, thankful for our country, thankful for the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. But let's be, um, let's think about, too, some of the, some of the, the context for those things. Um, any questions so far? Talk about God's transcendence and the prohibited actions that the second commandment gives for worship. Any questions? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, or comments. Sure. Yeah, I don't think so. 
right. market. It wouldn't market. Right. Yeah, that, I'd say that's uh, straining at gnats, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Missing the heart of the law, as Jesus says. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. That's interesting. That's interesting. Anything else? Any other comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Yes, I think that's a great question. Um, so the question Alyssa asked, in case anyone didn't hear, is that how do how do we think about relics and the, the veneration of relics that exist in other Christian traditions? Um, what do we? What's the justification for that, given what the Bible teaches um, here and elsewhere? Um, yeah, I think I think obviously I think I mean this this is part of what I was talking about in terms of the reformation of worship practices being at the heart of the Reformation. Um, the reformers are very concerned about the way in which um, physical things were venerated. Um, uh, not only things that purported to be ancient, you know, fragments of the cross or whatever, but in also statues of Jesus or Mary or um, other things like that, visual representations of God. Um, so the reformers objected to that partly because they just thought it was corrupt. They just thought it was that, you know, every church in England had a fragment of the Holy Cross, you know, um, um, somehow or whatever, or the bones of John, the, you know, whatever. Um, so you guys may have read some of that, that writing. So they, they saw it as corruption. They saw it as a way in which powerful people took advantage of weak people um, and, and solicited money and, you know, enslaved them, spiritually speaking. Um, but also they objected to it on these grounds, on the Second Commandment. And just the history of Israel, which was one of idolatry and false worship of God. And, and so I would agree with that critique. Um, I don't think there is justification. I don't, I don't know, I'm not familiar enough with sort of the Roman Catholic arguments for those things, I would say, to represent them well in terms of, um, I, but I think, I think I would imagine that lo most of the argument for it comes out of what they would um, described as the tra tradition of the church um, because it, you don't really have any examples of people. I mean, it's you don't see it in the Gospels. Nobody's, you know, following Jesus around and trying to pick up things that he's touched and taking them home and making a big deal out of them or, you know, like things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's very hard to build a, certainly to build a biblical case for the veneration of objects. And in a positive way, and I think there are a lot of reasons to think that it's prohibited explicitly by God um, because of, and I think again that the reason for that isn't just, it's not just an arbitrary thing by God, it's it is a it's a way of um, making God small um, diminishing him um, to say that I can relate to him through this physical object um, 
and he wants to say, no, I made all the physical objects. They're not me, and you should worship me. Um, and not use an object to worship, you know, use as a mediating presence or something. So I'm seeing a few hands go up. Um, yeah, Jeremy, and then a few others. Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I understand. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a Catholic is worshiping, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to say a Catholic, you're not using that as a tool for worship. I think that's the distinction I would make. And I would say that also is, yeah, I understand you're not bowing down to the Statue of Mary and worshiping it in some, you know, ritualistic pagan way, but you're, you're saying this actually makes me, this, this is an action that is pleasing to God and good for my soul. And that's why I would say, nope, that's, nope, I don't think so. Sure, no, I understand. I agree. Um, but, but, but once again, but those, I think the problem <laughs> is probably so many archetypes that set forth mm -hmm. scripture. Yeah, it's essentially making a sacrament of things that are not sacraments in many ways is what the error is. Yeah, yeah, we should be careful. We're not, no one is saying, I'm not saying that Roman Catholics worship statues of Mary. What I'm saying is that there there's going to be errors and not just the Roman Catholic, um, wing of the church, other wings of the church, by using, what I'm warning us against is using particular physical objects as tools to make your heart pleasing to God, to be spiritually, um, deepen your spiritual life. Um, and so, you know, I just think we have to be very careful about that. Um, um, yeah, did you have a question or comment, Scott? Yeah, and, and my response to that would be, I'd say the Second Commandment prohibits both. Um, I agree. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> right, right. Ben, I'm not so sure about, but uh, I know you're on my side, Scott. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, two quick questions, then we'll move on. Yeah, or Mary. Yes. Yeah, objects are fine. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, God does. That's a great point. So Mary's saying in the Bible, in the Old Testament, um, he said, put up stones of remembrance, like the crossing of the Jordan, those kinds of things. Um, and that's exactly right. Ebenezer's, right? And we should do that. But the difference is we shouldn't go back to those places and genuflect before them and bow down before them and, and um, kiss them or 
you know, sort of infuse them with some sort of like spiritual significance um, in that way. It's just, it's there for you to see and to remember. And that's what the Lord says specifically, right? So when you're walking by, you see, you remember God was faithful. One last one from Jeff, we'll move on. That's fair to say. That's fair to say. Um, so third point here, um, we learn how seriously God takes our worship of him. I think this is something that we should all, I, I certainly don't want to turn this discussion into just sort of a critique of other religious traditions. We also need to be very thoughtful about how the second commandment applies to us. And I think one of the ways it applies to us is that it, it should give us a kind of seriousness about how it is that we worship God, um, and we should be careful. Um, Annie Dillard, who's a writer I enjoy, um, she's not a theologian, but she's great. Um, she says, I often think of the set pieces of the liturgy as certain words which people have successfully addressed to God without their getting killed. Which she says that a little tongue in cheek, but you know, you're sort of like, not really though, you know, like she's actually sort of being serious. Um, because, you know, the, the story in Leviticus 10, uh, the sons of Aaron offer strange fire to the Lord. And I mean, there's not really a discussion at that point or, you know, it's just God just kills them. Um, and, and it's interesting because Aaron doesn't object. You know, we don't know exactly what they did, but it was wrong. And Aaron understood and other Israelites, Moses, understood, you know, there are high stakes when you worship God. Um, and you know, there are New Testament examples of this too, you know, Ananias and Sapphira and those kinds of things. Like there are, there are, we just need to be, think about the ways in which we worship God matter deeply. Um, and it's a serious thing um, to engage in worship with God. Um, and we should be very careful about who we, who we trust to lead us into worship of God um, because that actually is a really important like that, this is, yeah, I'll just say, um, I don't, I don't employ a worship committee here, and it's not because I don't trust you or like you or whatever, um, but because I really think that this is one of the fundamental callings that I have as a pastor, is to assemble the liturgy every week, um, because I think it is really important, and it's, something that I gladly give time to every week. Um, and I just, I say that not so much to critique churches that have worship committees or whatever, but just more to say like, that's, it's important. Worship is serious business. Um, it's not a time for experimentation or whatever, you know? Um, or just let's see what works. Um, so I'll just say that. Just, I think worship is serious. And the, and the second commandment teaches us that, that it, it matters greatly to God. 
the way in which we worship God. Um, we learn also that, and this is an important point, one I want us to really think about, that the Christian religion instituted by God is fundamentally a word-based religion, not an image-based one. So this is sort of like thinking about the second commandment as a meta thing, right? Um, it means that the, 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 the God was using language to communicate um, the Ten Commandments. He was literally writing words in a human language, um, in Hebrew presumably, on a stone to communicate um, to Israel his, his will. He was not making an image, and actually he was prohibiting making an image. He was saying, don't make images, use words. And I think that's a really fundamental thing to think about um, for us as Christians. Uh, Martin Luther calls the church um, a word house. It's a, it's a mouth house. Um, he says, because it's all about the words that we exchange, and that's what we do, um, I think, in true Christian worship, is we, we hear words from God and we speak words back to God. Um, that, that's fundamentally what we're doing in many ways. Um, and I think this has huge implications in our culture, which is so image-based and increasingly so, um, uh, which is actually something we should be really, really thoughtful about. You know, these screens that we carry in our pockets and have all over our homes um, that are not fundamentally word-based, they're fundamentally image-based. And, and what does that mean for us? Because we are a people whose God has chosen to reveal himself fundamentally through language, not through pictures. Um, and I think, I think that's something we have to be really thoughtful about. It's not just technology might be bad, but actually it's, it just might be orienting our hearts in way, like if Christians ever stop learning to read and interpret texts, we're in trouble, you know, like as a church, because it'll be impossible for us to be faithful to God because God has revealed himself. So, so teaching your children to, to read and to think about language and to think about how stories work and to think about how narratives work and how language, fun, like that, that's actually like a spiritual tool that you're giving them because of the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself. And if we if we ever lose that as a church, we're lost um, in terms of, because this is the way God has revealed himself. At Sinai, God does not show himself, um, Lightheart says. Um, he is the one who declares and commands and writes on tablets. He is the unseen God who speaks. He is, in some sense, word. And of course, that's how he would be described in the second person in John 1. And even how does Jesus reveal himself today? Primarily, of course, in the written word. Um, how do you know who Jesus is? Well, Jesus the apostles have written down for you a record of Jesus's life. They could have done it some other way potentially, but they chose to describe it using human language, using the language of Greek that's been handed down to you and translated now into your vernacular. Um, that is the way in which God has revealed himself to you through Jesus Christ. Even if you think about the other sacraments, um, which engage other senses, they're not primarily manifestations of God that we see. And sometimes, I don't actually don't like this, sometimes in the Reformed tradition, um, the sacraments are referred to as the visible words of God. But, right, there, you've got the, the word of God, you know, that's the sermon and the, the preaching and the scripture, and then you've got the visible word of God, which is the sacraments. I think that's, I don't like that language. I don't think that's helpful. Because the sacraments are primarily, it's like it doesn't matter what the bread looks like or what the, the goblet looks like that we have the wine, you know, like that's not, that's incidental, right? What it, what it matters is that you taste the bread on your tongue and you chew it with your mouth and you feel it 
when it goes into your body, like those are the senses that matter um, in terms of the way that God is engaging you physically, right? It doesn't matter what your baptismal font looks like. It's the water um, that you feel in your head um, when you're baptized like that. And so even just thinking just, this is just kind of meta perspective, but even thinking about the senses that God engages with us, you know, of course the ears, the primary sense, hearing, um, hearing the word of God um, is what we're told to do again and again in the scriptures. Um, but even the sacraments that we have that are true revelations of God are primarily things that we touch, taste, or smell, not see. Um, uh, God reveals himself to us by the ear, especially the ear, but also the nose, the tongue, the body, but not really the eye um, in terms of true religion, true manifestation of God. And I think that's something for us to really think about. Why is that? It's because we cannot see God. Um, that That is the continual... Um, and that's going to make people anxious, right? To worship an, a hidden, unseen God, a God that we cannot capture visually. And, and that's, I think, part of why you see what you see in some religious traditions. You, you want to do something with that anxiety. Um, Jesus ascended and is no longer visibly present. We don't see his glory as the apostles did, and that's on purpose, right? He chose to do us that way, to do it that way for us. He's with us by his spirit. And that spirit comes to us in sensible forms, in audible words, tangible water, edible food and drink. Someday we will see Jesus face to face, but not yet. To live by the eye is to reach ahead of time. It's to go into the eschaton in a way that we're not ready for. We should be very careful, therefore, how we relate to images of God. Um, so I'll just say this before I read the Westminster Standards. Um, I have a difference with the standards in the sense that I think the standards very clearly prohibit the making of any images of God, any of the persons of the Trinity, um, just flat out, you should not make those things. They should not exist, basically. If you, if you make them in your mind or physically, um, you're sinning against God. I think, especially the second and third persons, especially the second person of the Trinity in particular, um, because of the incarnation, we can make um, images of Jesus Christ and his incarnation. We'd have to be very careful about that, though. And I... And I and I understand this, and I hold this, ex this difference lightly, loosely. Um, and I should say, within the Presbyterian Church of America system of government, so we have the Westminster Standards that all pastors are required to subscribe to, but we are um, required, actually, by our polity to read very carefully through the standards and describe to our presbytery any differences, any places where we might disagree with what the standards say, so that the presbytery can judge whether that difference is acceptable or not. So that when I say difference, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking, this is a, a statement I've made to my presbytery that they've heard and allowed, essentially. Um, so I do have that difference, but I'm, I'm actually pretty careful. I hold it pretty loosely because I know that it is a difference with not just the Westminster Standards, but with the original reformers in general, right? Calvin would have agreed that it was bad to make images of God um, just in general, um, even if he didn't worship them, um, you still, so that's the distinction I would make, that it's, okay, it's permissible to make images of God, um, of the second person, rather, particularly um, Jesus, um, but not to use them for religious devotion at all. Um, but it, it's one I hold loosely, and, and honestly, I'm, I wrestle with it a lot more now than I did 13 years ago when I was ordained for the first time, um, because I think I understand better the logic. of, And I, this is true for me. I also have a difference with the fourth commandment. Um, but I've become, as you've probably noticed, my recent sermons, more Sabbatarian, uh, so to speak, <laughs> um, more in line with, I actually wonder if I have a difference at all anymore with the fourth commandment, 
um, how it's described in the standards. And I, so anyway, theological development is something that happens even for pastors, you know, um, which is good. Um, but I will say this, like I do make some, dis- there are some practices in my life that I would just encourage you to think about. I do not on purpose watch or allow my children to watch um, movies or TV shows which purport to depict Jesus. Um, because I think that's, well, I just think it's unwise. I'll just say that. Um, the reason I think it's unwise is not because I think you'll be tempted to like bow down before your iPad or whatever and worship that image of Jesus, but because the way in which cinematic depictions have such a comprehensive effect on the human imagination, right? Um, and I, it just makes me nervous because I want the impressions I have of the person of Jesus Christ to be shaped pretty much exclusively by the way in which he has revealed himself to me as a person who lives 2,000 years after his incarnate life, which is through the written word of God that is given to me in the gospels primarily, but also the entirety of the scriptures, of course. Um, and so I just, that's for me, like I've never seen The Passion of the Christ. I've never, I don't watch The Chosen or Chosen, whatever it's called, the new thing that's out now. Um, I don't, I don't want, I just don't, I just don't. Um, and I would just say, it's, I'm not saying that is like some religious law that I'm going to tell you you're sinning if you do, but I am saying we should think about this. Like, what are we, what are we doing? I think a really good example is, this is a silly thing in some ways, but like I don't, I don't, I watched when I was young and naive um, the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, and, it, and it's been a long time. Um, um, and y'all may love the Lord of the Rings movies, et cetera, et cetera. But if you've seen them, they probably have an impact on how you read the books now, right? Like they just do, because they're this big sweeping epic thing. And so I don't allow my kids to watch when they're older, maybe they can watch it or whatever if they want um, when they're grown. But like, because right, the reading of the Lord of the Rings is like an important um, practice in our family, right? I've gone through the whole cycle with them like three times over the last 16 years I've been reading to my kids. Um, and, you know, it takes about a year or whatever, but it's great. Um, and, I, and I don't, and I mean this, like I don't want them to hear me read the words of Tolkien describe this universe that he created and imagine Elijah Wood or whatever, you know? Um, is that his name? Um, um, I just, I don't, want it, I don't want that, you know? Like I want Tolkien to be the one who constructs their imagination and their impression of Middle Earth and all these things all these glorious things. And so that's a similar reason for why I would just say, I just, I just, I mean, if that's, you know, I'm sort of joking, not joking about the Lord of the Rings, right, in terms of its importance, but I'm not joking at all about the importance of the gospels and the importance of how you think about Jesus. Um, so just something to think about. I think, I think cinematic movies, TV stuff is just uniquely powerful in shaping the, which is, why it's so dominant today, right? Because we have the technology to do it and it does something to us. Um, it's, it's, it sucks you in in a way that other things don't. Um, even like a painting of Jesus doesn't have the same kind of power over your imagination. Um, so let me, let me close by reading the Westminster Standards on this. 
Westminster Larger Catechism 108, what are the duties required in the second commandment? I think this is really helpful. What are the positive things that the second commandment requires of us? Um, it's not just a prohibition, it's also something else. And you'll notice this is all about worship. Um, the duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ is words spoken to God, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the words, right, words that God speaks to us, the administration of receiving of the sacraments, right, these tangible things that the Spirit uses to mediate Christ to us, uh, church government and discipline, which are spoken words, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God and vowing unto him, as also the disproving, disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it in all monuments of idolatry. So, um, so the second commandment, there are, are the, the standard writers of the standards saying it require positively that we worship God faithfully according by the, the means that he has appointed for that worship. Then what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. So as Frame talks about, it, it's focused on how we worship God, the manner in which we worship God. Tolerating a false religion, the making any representation of God. So here's um, where I have a difference. So it's, they're saying that second commandment excludes any making of any representation of God at all of all or any of the three persons, um, right? So it's carving out any loopholes you might want to try to make. Um, either inwardly in your mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it, the making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices. Um, so that's where they would talk about relics, that kind of thing corrupting the worship of God, adding to it, taking from it, whether invented or taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent. So it doesn't matter what your motivation is about using objects in religious worship that represent God. You shouldn't do it. It's sinful. It doesn't matter if your heart's good. Or any other pretense whatsoever, simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God has appointed. There you go. Um, you can read, I've written out, the, this is the written difference I have with the larger catechism and the second commandment that my presbytery is aware of. Um, so you can read that if you're interested. I'm happy to talk to you about that more. There are other comments there I've made. All right, friends. Um, hopefully some things to think about. What does it mean to worship and follow and adore an unseen God? I think it means quite a lot and we should think about it carefully. Uh, let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the way in which you train us to love you. I pray that the words that we've talked about today that are given to us in the second commandment, um, that these words would um, sink into our hearts, that we would ponder them even this week, and we would consider by your spirit um, how we might apply them to our lives. We pray that you be gracious to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.